Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello and welcome to the Over and Back Classic NBA Podcast. I am Jason Mann. And with me today, he is a site expert at Behind the Bucks and a podcast host for Win in Six. Also uh, writes for The Step Back as well as uh, many other endeavors. Adam McGee, welcome to the show. Hi, Jason. Thanks for having me on. So we are in the week of the NBA trade deadline. Often an exciting time, sometimes a dull time, but we're going to hope for another exciting one um, this year. But you recently wrote two pieces for Fan Sided, one looking at the greatest NBA trade line deals ever, and then one looking at the worst NBA trade line deals ever. And it occurred to me while reading them that you could really put the trade sort of in either category, depending on which point of view that you're looking at, because most terrible trades, you know, are, are good for one team and, and bad for the other and, and vice versa. This was the biggest challenge, and I think it was something that when I decided to do these pieces didn't fully occur to me. Um, but then once I sat down and I was trying to order, well, which trade goes where, I kind of had to look for some form of criteria to say, okay, well, what makes this the greatest or one of the best deals ever? What makes this one of the worst? And I guess what it came down to on that, I didn't want it to be, say, for example, um, the one that I put as my worst deal ever was the books trading Ray Allen to the Sonics, which ended incredibly badly for the books as Gary Payton walked away in free agency a couple of months later and they were left with Desmond Mason. That sounds like a home run for the Sonics, but ultimately it didn't really push them to a point of contention. They were still very mediocre. And I wanted to measure these trades as, I guess, on the positive side, what it showed for a team that was looking to make the next step, either make themselves relevant in terms of contention or move from a year-on-year contender into a potential champion and then I guess on the other side of the cone the thing I really wanted to focus on was just where the deals showed kind of a breakdown in organizational thinking or neglect of decisions that had gone before or decisions that were going to come up soon after that point so there is always that kind of that difficulty in what's a bad trade for one fan base could be a great trade for another so I tried to kind of break it down more objectively and say hey what is the point of all of this all 30 NBA teams are really here to win a, a title at the end of the day. So which which moves kind of brought that closer to it and which moves really sent them in an opposite direction to what they had been working for before that point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, you know, it, it's worth noting, of course, you know, that particularly that Ray Allen trade, you know, Allen is you know, 27 years old at that point, you know, really hitting his prime, as you mentioned. And, um, you know, the Bucks did have Michael Red waiting in the rings, and Michael Red was a really good player, and they they built the team around him, and they did okay with Michael Red. So they had you know a, a guy who, in some respects, was a replacement. Although you know, you probably could have figured out a way to just put them together and, and have an even more high powered team. So I mean, there was you know the logic behind it wasn't 
completely absurd. It definitely didn't work out for them. And Seattle, although, as you mentioned, they did not have, you know, they, they, they were never a contention for a title. They did have some pretty good teams. They, they, they took the Spurs to a tough series, I think, in 05. Um, so, you know, they didn't get nothing out of it other than, but obviously they moved on from Ray Allen, you know, a, a couple years later. And then, of course, it moved on from Seattle, unfortunately, right after that. Um, I, you know, there's a lot of, um, I mean, I, I do think you do a nice job of, you know, looking at some of the trades that, you know, obviously, like I said, work out for both teams, work out for one team, work out for um, uh, neither team. Um, yeah, looking at, you know, some of the most interesting ones, um, the, the 2001 trade uh, between the Hawks and the 76ers in which the uh, 76ers got uh, Dikembe Mutombo, the Hawks ended up getting uh, Nazi Muhammad, Tony Kuchkoc, and uh, Theo Ratliff, who was very effective for the Sixers that season but was was injured, was going to miss a lot of the rest of the season. And Mutombo, obviously, you know, a Hall of Famer, you know, getting older but still a effective player, would be an effective defensive player for the uh, next few years. Um What's interesting about that to me is that, um, you know, obviously that uh, the, the Sixers went to the uh, finals that year and were a very good team, even though they were overmatched, of course, against the Lakers in the finals. But um, that's a rare instance of a trade working out that well in that season. It, it, a lot of times it takes a team a long time to uh, adjust to that team. And it, it's also that team is sort of framed as Allen Iverson bringing a lot of, you know, guys who were kind of bums to, um, to the finals, but that was really a, a team of, you know, great defensive players. Matembo obviously being on top of the list that was really, um, well suited to compliment Iverson and to be strong in, in aspects of his game where he was not strong. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that was something it, it really all the the idea of that trade kind of came out of the all-star game where Tio Ratliff had been, was an all-star reserve and the Kembe Mutombo was an all-star reserve and, and Larry Brown was the coach on the Eastern team that year. And there's, there's quotes, there's a, a piece I, I linked to in it, a great piece for anyone who's kind of interested in looking retrospectively at it. It was an SI vault piece. I think it was by L John Wertheim. Um, but it was about the Sixers kind of thought process in this. And, Really, at that point at the All-Star game, seeing how Iverson and Mutombo could mesh together, Larry Brown started to kind of, he started to think about how that would look on a more day-to-day basis. And he kind of became a little bit obsessed with that notion. And it really was a perfect mesh. And they didn't quite come in, hit the ground running. Um, Like the trade was made in the February. They had a five-game losing streak in March, which I think was their worst run of the season. Um, and yet, by the time the playoffs came around, everything really pulled together for them. And it's kind of interesting just how it played out, where even in kind of pivotal matchups along the way, Matumbo was exactly the kind of guy they needed. Um, like the books and the conference finals where they, they managed to pull through in seven games. That was a great example of where the books were the books were lacking any really dominant center. That was the position where they had their greatest area deficiency. And Dikembe was unbelievable in that series. He really sort of right down the stretch in the final few games, he managed to get to the free throw line. He was his usual self defensively. And although there are many controversial aspects of that series, I think something that can't be denied is just how influential Dikembe was in making sure they got to the finals to begin with. And that's a matchup with an undersized guy like Tia Ratliff. You wonder, would it quite have worked out? So it was really something that was reactionary. It was a moment in time where they were forced to kick on and not really waste what was an incredible season from Allen Iverson, 
but they made a pretty instinctive move that turned out to make them a better team and also really worked for the matchup boys further down the line. Mm-hmm. And they definitely benefited that year from the East being kind of historically weak. But, you know, you take advantage of the opportunities you get. I mean, it'll – I think that's going to – you look at the the recent uh, Serge Ibaka trade to Toronto and, you know, Cleveland right now with the injuries that they have, you know, it, it appears that there could be a vulnerability there. And, it you know, it's incumbent upon a team to, okay, maybe this – maybe there's some negative long-term repercussions to this trade – but, you know, we're here, we you know, need to take advantage of this and go for it. Absolutely. That's a trade that when that happened, I had only probably less than 24 hours finished writing about this particular deal. And it's the one that came to mind because it is if somehow the Raptors just find a way through, if, if it's injuries or if the minutes load LeBron is currently carrying proves to be too much as the season goes on and the Raptors just find a way through. I mean, this is the kind of move where it's bold, but when you're as close as they are and have kind of been there thereabouts without breaking through for a number of years, it's really in your, in your interest to take the risk and just say, okay, well, if we don't do it now, what's going to happen? Are we just going to be conference semifinal, conference final team, never get any further and wonder what if? So there's a lot of parallels. If the Abaca deal turns out to go in any way similar for the Raptors, I think it'll be a slam dunk. It already looks good, but it's one of those where, right time the right team kind of just looking to take advantage of the situation around them it could turn out to be something that's a pretty memorable deal mm-hmm. uh, one that was on your list of best that i'd sort of forgotten about was um jeff hornacek uh to the jazz for uh jeff malone and a first round pick um you know it had been as you mentioned, 10 seasons that the Jazz had made the playoffs, most of that with, you know, Stockton Malone as their best players. And, you know, they hadn't gotten very far for the most part. You know, they, they'd made a conference finals or two, but they, you know, couldn't get past, um, you know, Houston or Phoenix or Portland, you know, whoever was kind of in the way uh, during those years, the Lakers obviously before that. And, um, uh, you know, getting Hornacek really changed the path for them. Um, you know, in later on in the decade, obviously making the '97 and '98 finals, and and they were a really good team. And he was just you know kind of a perfect complement there as a great shooter and you know really an all around great player. I think he's kind of forgotten. You know, he was part of the you know Charles Barkley trade, of course, from Phoenix to uh, Philly, and you know played really well there. Was was important there, and they 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 kind of lost him for um yeah, yeah for they didn't really get much back in that return. But you know for the Jazz that absolutely was you know a, a key element for you know the rest of their run yeah i think there's there's something really interesting about that jazz team because there was no shame even in that run of the 10 straight years without getting out of the west because they were a really good team getting very far at a time when even if it wasn't always the same team even if there wasn't one dynasty there was always someone who was really pretty good there kind of in the way i think the rockets are a great example of they they came up for the two years there was always someone who seemed to come up and really kind of put it to the Jazz or maybe skip ahead of them in the queue. And they were a team who really, throughout that time, they just needed a deal like this. They needed something extra because there's no doubting what Stockton and Malone could do together, were doing together. It was just, well, how do we get that little bit of extra help for them so we can push it one step further in the postseason? And Jeff Hornacek was that guy. And I mean, it was interesting in kind of in research and looking back, just how many teams were interested in Jeff Hornacek at that time 
And there was great reason for that. I mean, he was one of the better shooters in the league. He was putting up big numbers in Philadelphia, the kind of numbers that he was never going to have to really go to Utah and show night in, night out. We're talking like 20 points per game, I think, in his in his last season in Philadelphia. But when he does get there, he's another guy that those teams have to respect. And although, I guess, now it's a, it's a really common trend in the NBA to be like, well, who's your third guy or who's your fourth guy who's going to take some of the attention away? There was an element of a lot of great duos throughout the 90s, even into the 80s. And he was just that little bit extra that pushed him over the edge. And so much so, we've seen as that kind of guy that, um, again, looking up, I saw that the Bulls were making a pretty aggressive push for him at that time. And he himself was expecting to go there, having been an Illinois native himself. It seemed like there was going to be some kind of homecoming of sorts. And then, of course, as fate would have it, he goes to the Jazz and ends up being the one of the Bulls' uh, biggest competitors for a couple of seasons so switching gears to uh one of the worst trades um on your list uh steve francis from the uh, magic to the knicks for penny hardaway and trevor ariza and um you wrote kind of the differing you know, views in perception versus reality in this trade where the Knicks already had Stefan Marbury and there was a lot of hype of Francis going there. Yeah, and Francis had, you know, in the early 2000s, had had a, you know, very productive career. I mean, you know, you look at guys who, you know, <clears throat> put up the mix of points, assists, rebounds, and other categories. You know, the the level of guards, at least statistically, um, there aren't that many who produced as well as Francis did, you know, particularly early on in the decade, you know, with Houston. Uh, things kind of soured with him and the uh, Magic and, you know, things had already soured a little bit with Marbury and the uh, Knicks. But I remember at the time there were people who were, I, I think Isaiah Thomas was probably the, I think he explicitly made the comparison to, uh, you know, Monroe and Frazier, which of course is laughable um, now, but that, it was, it was certainly a, a, a hyped um, thing. And um, I had forgotten that the, um, which you were at the time that the Knicks were 15 and 38. So they were pretty desperate at uh, that point to uh, bring him in. And uh, to put it mildly, it, it did not mesh very well. Yeah, I think the the record is the most fascinating part of that to look back on and kind of question, well, why did this ever seem like a good idea? Because for everything Francis was kind of at the turn of the century, when he first came into the league, into the early 2000s, at this stage, it didn't take a whole lot to see that he was dropping off um, and to to kind of put your hopes that he would be able to team with Marbury and turn a team who was quite as bad as they were. I mean, they were second, I think second worst record in the East, definitely, if not in the entire league at the time. And you were putting your hopes in a 28-year-old Francis who was, he was not at his best to, to really just flip everything on its head. There wasn't a lot of logic there, and I guess not for the last time with the Knicks. It was kind of the foresight wasn't there for what it would mean longer term. Um, like it's not as much really about what they gave away. Like Penny Hardaway was waived shortly after by the Magic, which, considering their ties to him, says a lot. Um, and then Trevor Ariza, although he was a rotation player in Orlando, was really elsewhere. We went on to have a greater effect. But I, I find it's an interesting kind of juxtaposition of just the attitude of those two franchises at the time where the magic very unsentimentally were able to see a good deal, make the deal really as a salary dump and nothing else, flip the guys, move them on and build what became their team that went on to contend years later, where 
the Knicks have really still, since that point, they're still always looking for that deal that's just going to get them out of that place, kind of just below the playoffs, just making it into the playoffs and into some real form of contention. So it's, it's an interesting kind of snapshot of just how differently two franchises were thinking and how immediately the results pay off in both directions with the Magic really soaring onwards and upwards and the Knicks kind of being left standing where they are going, where do we go from here? So any of the trades that you had on the best and the worst list, were any of them like ones that you didn't really remember well or ones that kind of surprised you as far as like, oh yeah, I, I kind of forgot about this or or the outcome of this afterward? Were there any that, you know, that stood out for you in, in, in those terms? Yeah, absolutely. There was one in particular and I, I ranked it quite high on my worst deals list. Um, I felt like maybe it might be contentious for a lot of people. But really, when you look at it now and kind of analyze it in a very cold-hearted way, it didn't make quite as much sense at the time as as both sides probably thought. And this was the Joe Johnson deal, when the Celtics traded Joe Johnson to the Suns. And they traded Joe Johnson along with a first-round pick and a couple of role players, I think it was Randy Brown and Mil Palacio, um, for Tony Delk and Rodney Rogers in the kind of... In the hope that you know some veteran bodies can push us on to the next level, they were Celtics were a fine team. Was far from the best Celtics team that has ever been seen around the league. But I mean, Paul Pierce was on the rise. Antoine Walker was still pretty useful, and they were competitive. But really, they didn't get anywhere out of it. Um, Rogers was gone immediately the following summer. Uh, Tony Delk stayed for one more year. Didn't really do a whole lot. And then Joe Johnson went on to have this really really consistent career around the league obviously the seventh time all-star became a bit of a punchline but look joe johnson was that consistent he was that steady as a contributor even if he wasn't always on the best teams and he was on a lot of hawks teams that were close to my own heart he was still fairly reliable throughout that period of time the other part of this deal then i guess that's interesting is it leads you to a place where if they had kept joe johnson and that had kind of developed earlier where does that leave them further down the line? Do you ever get to a point where they end up going after Kevin Garnett? And Ray Allen in particular, then, if you've got Joe Johnson and Paul Pierce, do you look for a Ray Allen? So it's a move that it wasn't a good move at the time. Eventually, they got to a place where they made good moves that mightn't have come about if they hadn't made this mistake. But it's interesting in terms of a deal that really gave the Suns a nice few years for very little in, in return. And the kind of... The whole destiny of the 2000s for the Celtics hinged on this point because who knows what would have happened otherwise. One of my favorite things is this Celtics team in 2002 made the uh, conference finals. And then in uh, 2004, uh, Kenny Anderson, Tony Delk, and Antoine Walker, all from this team, were on the uh, the, the 2004-2005 um, Hawks that won 13 games. So right. uh, three seasons later, they're like, you know, on you know, one of the worst teams in NBA history. So uh, funny how uh, things can change uh, so quickly. Yeah, it is. It's amazing. And it's even, um, when you look at like elements of this deal, Rodney Rogers, who, who I mentioned, he came in and he was kind of to be this veteran to help them, help them over the line. They go and they lose to the Nets. I, I, if I remember correctly, they got swept by the Nets, the conference finals. And what does Rodney Rogers do that summer? He leaves a free agency and he goes signs with the Nets. So it's just, it's a kind of funny snapshot of a guy who the Celtics had just drafted with a 10th overall pick. We're not talking like a late first round or second round guy. 
they were in such a hurry to get back to real serious contention that they rolled the dice and it didn't didn't pay off for them. Mm-hmm. So I was looking through some uh, trade deadline deals or close to trade deadline deals that I thought would be uh, interesting to um, to talk about. Uh, one is uh, the 1999 uh, point guard swap that uh, basically sent uh, Stefan Marbury to the New Jersey Nets um, and uh, Sam Cassell to Milwaukee and then uh, Terrell Brandon to uh, Minnesota. And, uh, you know, I think at the time that would have been thought of as a big win for the Nets for Stefan Marbury, given, you know, he was kind of the most productive player in that respect. And, you know, he certainly, again, would be productive for that team. But that really, I, I think, changed the course of all those franchises because, you know, Marbury um, was, you know, for, for his faults, was a premier talent. And, you know, pairing him with Garnett may have had some really strong dividends. Um, and, you know, the guy who, whose career really lasted out of the three the longest and was the most effective player later on in his career was Sam Cassell. Yeah, absolutely. It's a, it is one of those interesting ones where if it wasn't a complete sort of win for all three, there was definitely no, there was definitely no obvious loser. Um, when that deal came off like the idea of Marbury and Garnett is even still to this day to think about it's fascinating um, but I, I think it was best for both of those guys to kind of feel out in different places particularly Marbury I think that was an interesting mix of, of guys on that Nets team and he really had the space to kind of kick on and make it his own where he may not have had that kind of room in Minnesota at that time and um, for Cassell, I mean, Cassell landed in in a spot with the books who, you know, they were an OK team. They were on the rise under George Carl, but it was really a spot where he was the perfect fit for what they wanted to do. And he meshed perfectly. He had the best years of his career and he had the best years of his career at an age where he probably should have been past his prime. And um, so there's a lot to be said for that. It just the situation it put Sam Cassell in, it really paid off for him. And even a guy like Terrell Brandon, who was, I mean, the, for the most part, a middle-of-the-road point guard throughout his career, he did have a, a sort of run of two, three great seasons in Cleveland. Um, but he managed to get something of a resurgence in his own career when he went to Minnesota, managed to finish out his career there then playing pretty solid basketball. So it's definitely, it's one of those interesting deals, and it's rare, particularly in a three-team trade. Um, to find a deal where there's not an obvious loser straight away and you can see something that works out for each team and for each player in particular, that they they all really got better or the opportunity suited them better in their new environment. So um, another one to me is the 2005 trade that sent uh, Chris Webber to the uh, Sixers. And um, the Sixers got uh, Webber, Matt Barnes, and Michael Bradley. And the Kings got Brian Skinner, Kenny Thomas, and Corliss Williamson. And you know this is honestly still kind of a shocking trade given where, you know, Weber had had microfax surgery and there was, you know, a certainly a sign of decline to a degree. But the fact that the Kings couldn't even get guys who were in expiring contracts like Kenny Thomas, like had, I think, another like four years on his contract. And they had guys who, you know, when you when you deal a guy like Weber, obviously you're transitioning into a new phase. And the uh, you know the Kings were going to uh, about to do that. They, in, in fact, um I think they made, they did make the playoffs one more time after this, but you know they hit, they currently have the longest uh, streak without a uh, or I, 
I'm sorry, I, I guess actually the Timberwolves have the longest uh, streak without making the playoffs by one season. But, you, you know, the fact that the Kings launched this rebuild on these terms and never really were able to, you know, recover from it, whereas, you know, Weber was not a good fit necessarily with Iverson and, um, you know, they did lose in the first round in 05 and then couldn't even make the playoffs and then ended up having to buy out Weber just two years later. It uh, that This one really didn't work out for either team. No, it didn't. And it's I think the the part of this that really jumps out is the fact that if you look at why the Kings haven't been able to really press on and be even anything reminiscent of the, the team they were in the early 2000s, it's because they were willing to move on with so little in return. It's something now that when we think of even, I guess now when you hear, every time you hear the Marcus Cousins rumors come up, part of the problem with, I guess, finding a deal for the Marcus Cousins isn't that where would he fit or who has the assets? It's the Kings now trying to measure exactly what is it worth to move on from a guy. And although Weber was in decline, he was getting older, he had had his injury problems, it was still a very big decision for the organization to pull the trigger on that and say, okay, it's time to move on. And normally to get to that point where they're prepared to do that, there's always something meaningful coming back that they can feel confident as an organization. Well, it's going to give us the tools if it isn't the main building block itself to get to that stage again, or it's something that the fans can stay invested in. And that is a trade that is very interesting for just kind of skipping past all of that. So another deal that's fascinating to me is 2008 um, trade deadline deal where um, the Cavs acquired Ben Wallace, Joe Smith, Delonte West, and Wally Zerbiak. And the uh, Bulls got Drew Gooden, Larry Hughes, uh, Shannon Brown, and uh, Cedric Simmons. Um, and uh, Danielle Marshall, Iron Newble, and Adrian Griffin all went to Seattle. But that that was not necessarily an important component of the trade. It was more what, particularly what Cleveland got out of it and what the Bulls uh, were, you know, getting out of Ben Wallace's contract. But that was a mistake. But that really was a important trade for the Cavs who were were, were kind of languishing um that season you know the year after they had made the finals um but they as a team had stalled out were struggling but that team ended up you know forming a pretty tough challenge for the Celtics in 2008 taking them to seven games and then ended up being you know a um a pretty good compliment to LeBron and you know a couple of you know 60 plus win seasons in um 09 and 2010 and you know Cleveland of that era does get a lot of grief for um you know, not being able to find, you know, another great, you know, awesome, you know, superstar level compliment to LeBron. But they, I, I do think they did a pretty good job of, you know, being nimble and making some trades on the margins that were, you know, important. Like, you know, Ben Wallace was not a good contract, but he still, you know, had, you know, great um, on-off numbers and was a defensive force and, you know, was still valuable. And, you know, and obviously Delonte West became really important for what they did. You know, Zerbiak was a shooter. Um they were able to make some savvy moves that, um, you know, surrounded him with, with good talent. Obviously, it wasn't quite enough. They didn't, never were able to make the finals, and LeBron ended up leaving for Miami. But I, I, I do think the effort there is better than, you know, some people give them credit for. Yeah, without really changing the, the face of the franchise, for better or worse, it just kind of padded out the rotation and made them a more consistent a more competitive threat throughout that and they were already a good team although as you mentioned it wasn't there was maybe a slight drop off the year before but they were already still competitive i think someone like ben wallace 
I guess similar to Matumbo, if you're going to go much further along on his career, there's always value to those guys just because of their presence. And that's probably something that wasn't wasn't necessarily underestimated by the Cavs in making that trade. And that goes, I guess, for Ben Wallace within the locker room as a personality, but also in whatever minutes it was. And it wasn't exactly heavy minutes at that time. But when you put him on the floor, you're still going to make opponents think twice about driving to the rim or how exactly you're going to attack Ben Wallace. Even if he's not the 35, 40 minute guy he would have been early in his career, I think he was still playing kind of upwards of 20 minutes or close to that mark anyway at that time with the with the Cavs. So it's still enough to give your opponents food for thought. And that was important in kind of setting a balance. As you mentioned, a guy like Delonte West then became a reasonable role player for them for a long time. So there was definitely there was definitely reason for the Cavs to do that. As you said, it didn't have the big payoff, but the intent for good was definitely there. And I wouldn't say that it really fell on its face either, considering the other players that they gave up. It was kind of a low-risk move that didn't pay dividends. Yeah, it's interesting for it to be such a, a large trade involving right. so many players and, and really reshaping the team around LeBron, yeah, without it being... Um... Uh, you know, without uh, trading away any of their core pieces, although other than LeBron, I'm not sure they really had any core pieces at uh, that point. Maybe Vergeau, but and I, and I guess you know Ilgowskis. But um, I mean, they they got probably the four most productive players other than Drew Gooden in that trade. Um, I mean, that was really yeah at, the, at that stage of their career. Uh, the rest of those guys were pretty much you know done or, or, or hadn't done too much in the league. So they they really did you know make out um, well with that deal. Uh, so I think the last trade I want to talk about is um, it's hard to believe it's been six years since this trade, but the uh, Carmelo Anthony trade to the Knicks. And, and I'd sort of forgotten how big of a deal that was. So uh, the Knicks got uh, Carmelo, of course, Chauncey Billups, Renardo Balkman, Anthony Carter, Sheldon Williams and Corey Brewer. Uh, the Nuggets got Raymond Felton, Danilo Gallinari, Wilson Chandler, Timofey Mozgov, Costa Kufus, and um, two second-round picks, a first-round pick, and then an option to swap a first-round pick. The Timberwolves were also involved and got Eddie Curry, Anthony Randolph, and uh, a second-round pick. So um, I forget if this was the point where we still thought Anthony Randolph could be a thing or whether it was you know, kind of past that point. But regardless, there are a lot of names in this um a lot of names. This uh, one of the picks in that um, that was involved ended up being um, Dario Saric. So uh, just a, a lot of names here. A lot of really interesting uh, players and um, a, a really fascinating deal. Of course, at the time, you know the the Knicks were criticized for being impatient when they could have you know potentially uh, gotten Carmelo in free agency without really having to get up give up anybody. But there was also the fear that he might sign with Brooklyn instead. Yeah, I think one of you touched on it straight away. It's amazing to think it's so long ago, six years now, and yet we're still we're still seeing kind of the the remnants of it only flow through now. Like Dario Saric, and um, Jakob Pertl was another guy who was selected with a, a draft pick that was that swapped hands on that. Rashawn Holmes the year before. There's still guys coming into the league that are with their team because of this trade, which is really incredible. So so far down the line. This is a trade that I, I put a lot of thought about putting on boat list. I, I honestly, I didn't know exactly what to do with it. And I think the conclusion I came to overall is it was harder to fault the Knicks for trading for a guy like Carmelo Anthony. The price they paid was exceptionally high, way too high. But this wasn't a Steve Francis situation. They were getting 
a real bona fide in his prime superstar. And obviously having already started to experiment and kind of tweak the roster, getting a Mary Stoudemire in there, there was a part where they could see something coming where it never materialized. But you know what? It's easier to understand. Um, the most interesting part of this deal, though, the longer it goes on, is the Nuggets. Because there's very few guys that the Nuggets got back in this trade who didn't end up being key contributors from at some point. And that still goes through today when guys like Wilson Chandler and away from, I guess, his pretty regular injuries, unfortunately, Danilo Gallinari, are still so, so important to what the Nuggets do, even with a new young core of players. Um, but they even got solid contributions out of guys like Costa Kufos, Tim Faye, Mozgov. And you look through that whole trade and you're just seeing a slew of names that you can't stop and say, well, what if the Knicks had been able to keep that guy or those two guys with Carmelo and with Amari? Um, the the free agency point is is always going to be valid because the Knicks have done a good job of getting talented young players on their roster before this deal. And they kind of gutted all of the young talent with it, which just made it so much more difficult for Carmelo when he got there. It had to be all on him. And even more so then when Amari Sotomayor's injuries just proved even worse than they could have imagined. And it was fewer and far between the times that they'd get to see the two of them on the court for a sustained period of time, as they would have hoped. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I think both teams kind of got what they want out of this deal and were able to form mm-hmm. some really good teams out of it. I mean, that that Carmelo Anthony, um, the, the team... Um, I think it was 2013 or 2014, the year they won 53 games and, you know, had some really great shooters around Carmelo and had, you know, it kind of started playing him at power forward and, and, and sort of maximizing him there. I mean, that team was a team that, you know, really did have, um, you know, they could have built on that and, you know, kind of figured out a way to, you know, maximize Carmelo. And then, you know, things happened. Carmelo got hurt. They, you changed regimes and, um, you know, and, and things were pretty bad pretty quickly. But that that was a, a situation that I think, you know, could have been exploited. They just, you know, went in the wrong direction, made some bad moves around it afterward. And the, and the Nuggets were the same way. I mean, that they had that really exciting 57-win team that in George Carl's last year, you know, all these, you know, all this ball movement, all these guys contributing different ways, all this, you know, kind of exciting uh, basketball. I mean, they were kind of the darlings right before the, uh, you know, the Warriors took off. Um you know, they never had the high-end player like the, that, you know, even close to what Steph Curry did. But they had, like you said, some really exciting players like Gallinari and Chandler were a big part of that. And um, But unfortunately, after that, they, you know, moved on from George Carl and, and changed situations. And it just, you know, went went really poorly. Now, you know, I don't know if either of those situations really were sustainable. But it you know, they, they certainly both found success after this deal where they could point out like, hey, you know, this trade actually benefited for, for us. But, you know, they... Un- neither of them were able to you know, find long-term success um, afterward. I think it's an interesting case study from the Nuggets' point of view in terms of kind of getting ahead of the inevitable, which was that Carmelo was probably going to leave and making sure you got a real return and being able to build good teams. As you mentioned, that George Carl team, I can still remember back to that time and hearing that George Carl was fired and being completely just blown away by that as as he just won the coach of the year, I guess things like that, maybe we look a little different in hindsight with what's happened with George Carl since, but that is a real kind of sustained run of relative success. The Nuggets were able to get out of just biting the bullet and kind of looking ahead and saying, 
when Carmelo hits free agency, what are the chances he comes back here? What are what are, are we in a position where he's going to want to come back? Is the allure of going to New York, Chicago, all the cities that even still to this day outside of New York still get mentioned in relation to Melo? I think that's a that's a brave, that's a bold move. But they showed that you know if you do that and you make sure you get the right haul, it can really pay off for you, short term and longer term. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, that's um, yeah, there's some really interesting lessons in uh, that, and a lot of these uh, trade de- uh, trades during the uh, trade deadline. Yeah, it really. Uh, obviously, there's been you know kind of an extensive history, you know, almost um, or yeah, about 30 years or so of uh, trade deadline trades since yeah, that really became a thing in the uh, late 80s, and uh, some fascinating ones to look back on. So, um, for those who are interested, we'll have links to uh, both of uh, Adam's pieces in the show notes of the episode so you can uh, check those out and hope everyone gets the uh, trade deadline they are looking for it's always uh, an ex- or almost always an exciting time in um, the NBA we've had a few duds here and there but for the most part I feel like the last few years the trade deadlines have tended to be pretty exciting absolutely every time we hear it's going to be a quiet trade deadline now um, it seems to be that one or two days within that kind of within that window fireworks kick off and this year it's happened a little earlier we've had some interesting deals already so should be all set up for another interesting year to trade deadline. Indeed. So uh, thanks, everyone, for uh, checking us out. You can find us at the step back at fansided.com. And you can also find over and back on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcast. And, yeah, you can also follow us on Twitter or Facebook, uh, just at over and back NBA. So thanks for listening, and we'll be back again soon. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.